This is episode number 11 of Artful Thought, recorded live at the University of San Francisco's KUSF studio, which aired on Saturday, July 27th, 2019. I'm beyond stoked to talk with Paul S. Flores. His roles as a prolific poet, playwright, performance artist, youth arts educator, and USF theater professor continue to inspire and illuminate. Due to copyright laws, I had to cut the music from the recording, but have embedded my Spotify playlist to accompany the edited cut. The music includes legendary and current Latinx artists Palo, Sima Funk, Celia Cruz, Johnny Pacheco, La Lupe, Obsession, and the Colorado-based Mochachetes accompanied with their tribute music video to the 1969 walkout movement, Que Vive La Revolución, which is linked in the episode archive. Good morning or afternoon, uh, depending on where you're at in the world today. Thank you so much for tuning in to KUSF in San Francisco. I'm uh I was going to say DJ Mr. Darcy. I might as well just go for it anytime I start to say that because, you know, I can have more than one name. Uh, but yeah, I kind of switched it up. My show uh, that you're listening to the top of right now is uh, called Artful Thought. So my guest, who is uh, is a USF professor, theater professor here at uh, USF, and I'm super duper honored to have him in. His name is uh, Paul Flores, and he is super duper um, community oriented, and especially for youth, uh, as a youth arts educator, as an artist himself. Uh, and he does so many different different things in terms of um, writing. Uh, uh, he's a playwright. He's a poet. He's a spoken word performer. Uh, he is just so versatile and so talented and prolific in everything that he does. And I've never met him, uh, but I, I heard about him through uh, some undergrad students because I work with undergrad students at the Learning Center. And I, yeah, I just over time uh, heard really, really great things about him. So I, I looked a little closer into his background and what he's about. And he's uh, you know, one of the really great uh, San Francisco artists who is very um, engaging. You have so many different hats that you wear as an artist. I love hats. I yeah. love hats. I have a lot of hats. You're wearing a hat right now. I'm so. wearing a hat right now and I chose a hat today. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not just uh, uh, <laughs> proverbially speaking, it's also literally speaking. Yeah, I do like hats. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm in the MFA program here at USF, and Paul, you um, graduated uh, from San Francisco State, and you got your MFA from from there. Uh, and it's just so cool to see uh, what you're do what you've done, and what you continue doing. Uh, uh, I'll list off a a few things. This is definitely not um, everything that you've done. You've done so much. Um, you uh, co-founded. Youth Speaks, uh, you've um, helped develop uh, Brave New Voices, which is a national team poetry uh, slam that's on HBO, which people should check out. There's a lot of videos posted on YouTube and elsewhere. Um, and you currently ma manage Latino Men and Boys uh, program? I formerly, I'm the founder of that program, but I do yeah. no longer work at the Unity Council. Um, oh, okay. But that program still goes. I am no longer working there anymore. 
Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. And uh, and you've traveled all over, like outside of uh, community outreach development programs and stuff like this. Uh, you have so many works. Um, I just read uh, Along the Border Lies, which uh, is a super wow. Cool <laughs> Thank book. you. Um, That's so cool. That's my novel. Yeah. And uh, I will say, like, you should read it. Um, but there's some trigger warnings, like for me, like. I it really made me want to drink, smoke, and do drugs again. But I mean, that's it's worth it to. to I appreciate be that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Read my book and fall into addiction. Yes. No. <laughs> In no way does it glamour. Like I don't want to say that's the point of the book. No, at all, it's but not. It is hard for people who might be in recovery. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Uh, but uh, super, super great book, and uh, and I've also watched some of your spoken word. Uh, on some videos online because you've been on HBO's Deaf Poetry. There's mm-hmm. seasons uh, three and four. Mm-hmm. Um, I especially loved I Work in East Oakland. I don't know if that's the actual title. Uh, the title's actually called, um, it's called The Volume and, and the Gravity. I think that's what it's called. Um, is that what it's called? Something like that. I, know. I can't remember the exact title. Uh, but that poem has has been published in like three different or four different forms and exists in different spots. I don't ever finish a poem. I just kind of keep doing it until I'm tired of it and yeah. I change it. <laughs> I feel like poems I have the hardest. It's called time. Gravity's Volume. That's what it's called. Gravity's Volume, Black and Brown. Gravity's yeah. Volume. I'm gonna mm-hmm. have to write that down. Yeah, it's in yeah. it's in a Iowa State. Um, if you want the published version that's available, you have to go to Iowa State, um, one of their magazines. They published it. Cool. Yeah. I think uh, titling poems is like what I struggle with probably mm-hmm. the most whenever I write a poem. It's easiest to just write, you know, the poem and to feel the poem, but then having to name it, and especially if poems are so amorphous and they're always evolving and they're this shape shifting spirit, you know, it's really hard to, you know, you know, put a solid title on on something that's always, you know, always changing. Uh, you're a playwright. You've uh, written and uh, produced a lot, and you've acted in a lot of plays. Uh, and I really, uh, really loved uh, what I've seen uh, online, I guess, of Placas, the most uh, dangerous tattoo. Mm-hmm. Um, you're Gonna Cry, which was your solo, your one-man show play. Um, representa and most uh, recently we have Ire Mm -hmm. uh, true stories about Afro-Cuban immigrant artists in the US which was really cool uh, like genre of like docu-theater I really loved seeing that label I guess Mm -hmm. for it kind of similar to like Um, Mm docu-poetics yeah so yeah just those are some of his you know just some of uh, the portfolio that you have you've done a lot of other things um, but I guess uh, I'm interested in learning. And I've been more. teaching here oh, yeah. for ten years at USF. So um, thanks to the students who have taken my class and who will take my class this semester, it's already full. Both classes. Um, it's hip hop theater, uh, and I get a lot of students attracted because of the hip hop part. Yeah. Um, but those folks uh, who are interested, just look up um hip-hop theater on the in in any search at usf and you'll see the class and if you really want you can come try to get in i usually let 20 
and so there might be room for you. Yay, yeah, so definitely if you're listening, uh, take them up on that offer, like reach out. And um, I've heard like the students that I've worked with, um, because I work at the Learning Center, Mm -hmm. uh, they told me about you and uh, they took your class hip hop theater. And I was like, that's just the title of that class sounds amazing. And uh, and they raved about you. Um, so, yeah, I think that there and is there also like a, a lyricist lounge. Yeah. Yeah. The lyricist lounge um, was also f- created out of the class. Um, a couple students in that class started lyricist lounge, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Um, the the spoken word, the slam team. Um was also started out of my class uh, and they compete at Cupsy, which is the university level national um, poetry slam. So several of the cool projects that we have on campus came out of the class. It was originally like a super um, experimental thing because I had just basically performed for the the performing arts program and the theater chair came up to me and says, would you like to teach what you do? And I was like, sure, I can teach what I do. I don't know if it's like straight up traditional theater. You know, I, I perform hip hop theater and spoken words. Like, yeah, yeah. Teach that, teach that. And I said, okay. So I did. Um, and for the first four years, it was an elective with no, um, core F, uh, mm-hmm. categorization. So it was like basically anybody who just wanted to take a class and so they were really ambitious students. And so out of that, they started all these other, um, you know, on-campus groups. Yeah. Since it got core F um, requirement, you know, for undergrads, they can get their, their art credential or their art um, requirement done. Mm-hmm. So I've got like, you know, nursing students, psych students, uh, business um, hella international students mm-hmm. all coming into rap. <laughs> they all want to rap. Um, so it's cool. You know, we don't necessarily rap in class, but you definitely s- tell stories with um, hip hop aesthetics. Yeah. I wish I could take your class. I Take it. I, I could actually, I could, I had a professor uh, tell me I could go to the Dean's office if I needed to take an undergraduate class. Uh, that goes towards like my thesis, uh, and he said he would be like, I, I would, I would, you know, uh, like act on your defense, you know, to try to like propose whatever to the dean's office because they have, you know, rules about what you can and can't take. Um, but I definitely might steal the reading list. Uh, <laughs> there's the def- you, you can you can always find my um, my uh, syllabus on Canvas, but yeah. I use three books and I could easily give those to you. Yeah. <laughs> Not that the students read the books. Yeah. <laughs> Undergrad students have a hard time reading now. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of like screens and stuff are sort of competing with, uh, <laughs> with the, books. the page. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so uh, before all of, uh, all of this work and what you do now, uh, tell us about like where you grew up and uh, how you came to San Francisco. I'm from the border. I'm from um, a place called Chula Vista, California, which is about two miles from the Mexican border. In Southern California, San Diego, Southern part of San Diego. Um, I grew up um, when the border was a flimsy little three foot barbed wire fence and you literally could step over it. Or in my case, when I was a kid, I used to be into BMX. So we used to jump um, over the 
barbed wire fence as like an obstacle on a BMX course and we'd land in, Me- in Mexico and then just ride back over and do the same thing again. It was very different than it is now. And that all changed with um, President Clinton uh, beginning Operation Border Keeper, which militarized the border in 94 um, and 95 and 96. That's when you started seeing walls being built, uh, militarization. You would have... Um, increase in border patrol with all this new technology, which made it look like a war zone. Um, yeah. So, you know, infrared uh, tanks, um, automatic rifles, um, heat seeking, razor wire, just changed the whole border. And that was right when I left. So I got here in 95. Mm-hmm. So I left, I left Chula Vista in 95. Um, and so I actually wrote about that, that transformation. That's what my, my book is about is, the changing of of the um, the border community between Tijuana and San Diego, right when in the in the mid '90s, early mid '90s, when uh, narcos started to take over um, Tijuana, and uh, President Clinton um, really wanted to go hard against uh, illegal immigration. Um, and so he militarized the border and that just created more violence and more death, um, which we're now seeing is, is total um, disaster down there. Um, but that began, I mean, as far as I'm concerned with the the militarization of the border with Clinton um, in the 90s. And so that's where I grew up. I grew up going back and forth mm-hmm. between Tijuana and San Diego my whole life. So I have a very border identity split you know uh cultural identity um i speak spanish uh i speak spanglish um i was married to a woman from tijuana for a while so i spent uh, a lot of time in in tijuana and so along the border lies my book was really one of the first kind of um narco novels um Mm -hmm. about the introduction of um, drug trafficking, uh, international, transnational drug trafficking in, um, at the border. And then also, you know, looking at Im- illegal immigration mm-hmm. or undocumented or, or, um, just immigration in general from a perspective of the, the Chicano, like how do Mexican Americans often react to, um, living on the border and how sometimes many Mexican Americans can be subject to white supremacy and racist ideology and affecting their mentality to the point where they mm-hmm. hate their own ancestors. Um, and so I was talking a little bit about, about how that mentality forms uh, at, the, at the border, given all the crazy things that happen there. Yeah. Yeah. That was something that I really uh like in the way you braid different narratives of the different um characters in the book um who um all sort of have these different uh interconnected you know parts of that story of um and i'm not going to give anything away but what you're talking about with um sort of like i mean a lot of like trauma you know intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of like what we talk a lot about today in terms of identity politics of binaries between how you identify whether it's you know nationality gender all of this other stuff of um, you know just feeling so caught in between the crosshairs and that 
is what resonated with me, you know, in the book, even though I, I identify as, you know, I'm from Springfield, Missouri. Um, but I, it definitely enlightened me in a lot of ways of the perspective of, you know, digging down, down into, uh, what, you know, why, you know, there's, um, there's, uh, you know, these, uh, uh, you know, I guess the, the binary sort of, um, between, uh, uh, you know, different nationalities and why people, um, and I guess it's contagious to have this white supremacist sort of mentality of people who turn against their own mm-hmm. where they come from and um yeah it's a very complex layered mentality of but we see it now with trump we see we see a lot of a lot of non-white folks who are identifying with with trump and he puts them on tv all the time yeah um and you go where do these people come from like how how can you support a guy who hates you and your people and yet, it's it, it can happen depending on the context you're raised in. Um, what influences uh, have you been um, uh, prescribing to, or have somehow affected you? It can, you know, especially young people, especially young folks. Mm-hmm. You know, young folks can are very influential. And the book is about young people. I mean, the majority yeah. of the characters are all under thirty years old, and one of the main characters is is like sixteen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, those are influential moments. And uh, I was trying to um, expose just kind of how um, certain environments can uh, really, I guess, explode some violent natures inside people given the right ingredients, right? Um, we're seeing it now, I think, with, uh, you know, you have a, a president who really uh, incites racist racist hatred and people are going for it and they're not just going for it on uh, on tv it's an everyday interaction now where you could easily be having the police called on you for selling water outside um because somebody is expressing their racism Mm -hmm. and their their privilege and the way they think things should be you know and next thing you know um there's folks you know being arrested just for being black and breathing um, it or not being able to breathe. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so I, I feel like, you know, depending on, on what the, what the, what the context of, of kind of like the cultural um, um, zeitgeist is and where you grow up and what you start to prescribe to and, uh, and, and attach to your identity, you know, it, it can be super explosive at the same time. Um, you know, uh, one of the characters chooses to use art to talk about mm-hmm. that experience versus violence, you yeah. know, and I think um, that's another response to mm-hmm. the time that we have. There's been a lot of great art being produced right now. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of and we just talked about how poetry is one of those sort of vehicles of how people are even people I might fundamentally agree with. Uh, sometimes I just don't feel like the communication is there, like the. Uh, problem solving. And I think a lot of this stuff, we just have to process our feelings, you know, process what's happening. And art is the best way to do that without ever like screaming what my opinion is, but can I just be a human and feel these things Mm -hmm. and observe and try to interact with other people who are witnessing the same things? 
so yeah, and that character definitely I I know uh, it's uh, fiction, mm-hmm. but I was like I feel like that character reminds me most <laughs> of what I've you know read about about Paul. I I thought he identified the most with you. I was like. Maybe this is the character that he mostly. Yeah, definitely. That was lightweight autobiographical. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, the artist character in the book is kind of based on me, Um, but I'm not a painter. You know, I I don't I don't paint. I can't I can't draw a picture for I'm really bad at drawing. So don't ask me to draw anything. But I do appreciate um, visual arts a lot. (laughs) So it was kind of like vicarious fantasy. I mean, I'm the writer. I get to create the character. So I, I made him a painter. Of, of art um, and storytelling, uh, what are your earliest memories of realizing your love for storytelling and, and poetry, either in, you know, in books or in music and uh, movies or, mm-hmm. or anything like that? Um, so I get asked this question all the time, and I usually always come up with a new answer, mm-hmm. <laughs> a different one. Um, but I knew I was going to be writing at nine years old. So at nine years old, I knew that what I wanted to do was pursue storytelling through writing. Um, I didn't know it would be so, um, I didn't, I didn't understand the trajectory of a writer can take a lot of different roads, Mm -hmm. you know? So when I set out to write, I wanted to write books. I wanted to write stories like the things that I had read, right? Mm -hmm. I was really into fantasy you know, I was into stories about, you know, old times and very much into comic books. And so, like, you know, fantasy as an only child was like my friend, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, my mother, I was a what you call a latchkey kid. I was um, at, at nine years old. I was living in an apartment with my mom and she worked two jobs. So I had a lot of time on my own uh, as a nine-year-old. I would I grew up in an apartment complex, um, so um, I had a lot of time, and I was reading um, books at that age. I remember I, re- I read A Wrinkle in Time at nine years old, and I was really like fascinated with fantasy, and I was reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and things like that at nine. So I wanted to write those types of stories, and so I took I, I just did. I started writing at nine and um shared a couple of things with friends who i trusted you know um but at nine you don't know what you're really doing Mm -hmm. but the fact that i actually sat down and wrote stories to me um those were satisfying moments in my life and they although i was uh I was on a track to become a professional athlete which i did i did play for the chicago cubs um even while i was playing for the Cubs, I knew that my real destiny was to write. Mm -hmm. And so I was reading even at, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old on the bus, driving through the um, uh, Appalachian Mountains on my way to a, you know, no name town to play minor league baseball. I had a novel in my hand and my, my, uh, (laughs) my teammates would make fun of me and they say, didn't you play, didn't you sign? to play professional baseball so you didn't have to read (laughs) and I was was like actually no Um, but I'm starting to understand that clash inside the culture of professional sports which is anti-intellectual even in a supposedly intellectual game like baseball Mm -hmm. there is still a prejudice against folks who 
um, pursue intellectualism and including, you know, reading anything besides Sports Illustrated, uh, you know. So they would tell him, call me the professor. I would be introduced uh, as the professor. And, you know, I didn't know I was going to be teaching, but someone else knew I'd end up being a professor. Um, and so it kind of just followed from there. Uh, you know, I think I think uh, writing was a reaction to what I read and um, having and being an only child. You played for the Chicago Cubs. I thought I read that, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm definitely a St. Louis Cardinals fan, but I love <laughs> baseball in general. I love Rivals. Um, so many people think that um, baseball is boring, and I can kind of understand that, but still I wholeheartedly disagree. Um, but I I had um, uh, I never played professional, anything professional in uh, athletics, but I was athletic growing up, and, and I'm an ex-jock, I guess. And always felt in those groups, there is a certain type of, um, like, I guess, hyper masculinity, too, where um, and anti elite, you know, like it almost seems like you're coming off as snooty or something if you're really, really into reading. And that's something that I'm trying to work on in academia is like, no, I'm doing this not to be elite, you know, or to, to condescend uh, to, to anybody um, who hasn't had the education I've had. But um, yeah, but we can have all of these things. We can be interested in sports and art and academia. Mm-hmm. And, yes. Yeah. And it, we don't have to be either or. Um, so hopefully that's changed within, uh, maybe it's not changed in some athletic um, fields and some sports, but yeah. Sure. I mean, that was the cool thing about the experience of playing professional baseball was that I was playing with people from all over the world, um, all over the nation, but also from Latin America and Canada. So uh, it was an eye-opening experience for me. You know, certainly the first time I lived on my, I was 19 when I um, signed a professional contract. So uh, and then all of a sudden I was living in upstate New York and then I was living in West Virginia and then I was living in Arizona and then I was living in Illinois you know, so it was all brand new and I started to, um, change a little bit of, of, of who I was, but also learning from other folks. You know, it was, I started writing a couple different things about the experience, particularly just like looking at, um, some of the Latino players who had begun playing when they were like 15 or, I mean, they had begun playing professional at 15 years old. And then by, you know, 17 or 18, they're living in the United States and they've got four kids at home. I remember like one of one of the, my teammates had had three children and he was 18 years old. And I was like, dang, man, you 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 already have three kids. You're already a dad and you got to take care of these kids with this salary. So you got a lot more pressure on you than yeah. me. And he's still a kid. And he's still a kid. He's 18. 18. And, and, you know, he's looking at holding down not only his own family, but the whole extended family with his yeah his job playing baseball for the Cubs. And um, so, I mean, of course you're playing a game, playing a sport, Mm -hmm. but there is pressure uh, once you sign for money. Yeah. And being that age, like at a crossroads too, of like, like what you experienced, like, I don't know if that's, that's what I want to do. And Mm -hmm. maybe it's not even what I, what I want to do. And to have that pressure of like letting down your family who have certain expectations of tell me about it. My yeah. family were all cub fans. When I, when I signed <laughs> with the cubs, like everybody thought I was the golden child. Like, Oh my God. You know, my mom is, is from, from, from Chicago, from the Chicago area. 
Um, so when I, when I signed with the Cubs, it was like a dream come true for everybody in my family. Um, it was wild. It was wild. It was, it was out of this world to think that the team that my mother and my whole family grew up loving, I was playing for them. Yeah. So it was wild. And then when I stopped playing for it, there was a letdown for sure. Mm -hmm. But I quickly rediscovered how to pursue my real passion. Yeah. What was that like whenever you, was it like a moment of like a pulling a bandaid off sort of like you just decided like overnight, like you had just this uh, uh, quick decision overnight or was it like gradually like you're like, oh, I guess I should probably quit or like, how did you quit? Um, well, uh, the, I quit by uh, part of my contract was they paid for my, the Cubs paid for my college. Mm -hmm. So while I was playing, I was also enrolled at uh, UC San Diego, right? So UC San Diego is a great school, but mm -hmm. it's also on a quarter system. So you could do 10 weeks of a quarter. So I could f put in a whole quarter while being in the off season. So mm -hmm. I was able to, um, you know, get off, get off uh, um, baseball and then the semester would start and I could do a quarter and then head back to spring training in, in February or January. So I started and I loved it. You know, mm -hmm. I was taking um, philosophy classes and writing classes mm -hmm. and my teachers were outstanding. And I was like far more like, you know, uh, inspired by the, the moments I was spending getting feedback on my work, hearing my professors teach me things, um, meeting other artists, you know, the world started to open up for me in a different way than it had before. I started doing poetry readings. I started meeting professional poets. I started just changing my, my whole social circle. I left a lot of my jock friends behind. Mm -hmm. And then it became clear that San Diego wasn't where I needed to be, that I actually needed to be in San Francisco or New York. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it started to open up to me. Someone said, oh, you know, I'm going to apply to an MFA program in uh, Naropa in Colorado. And I was like, well, what's that? You know, what's an MFA program? I didn't know what that was when I was an undergrad. And then, um, you know, she was, uh, this poet was one of the most well-respected poets in, in our uh, college. And she's like, yeah, you know, I know Allen Ginsberg and um, uh, Ann Waldman and all these really cool people. And so I started looking those folks up and like, oh, dang, you know, like, this is amazing. I could go learn from these folks at these colleges who I was reading, who I wanted to read. And so I was like, that's what I want to do. I, I, I want to pursue this. I, I don't want to spend time training for baseball. Mm -hmm. I, I want to train for writing. I made the choice to go to grad school, which essentially was like, okay, I can't go to grad school and play baseball at the same time. It's too mm -hmm. demanding. And I was going to move. So I um, didn't go back to spring training. I informed my scout that I was not going to continue mm -hmm. and that I was enjoying going to school. And that's what I was going to do. That's cool that they paid for school. At mm -hmm. least that's really, really cool. Um, and yeah, and that's a really cool story of... Um, I think not all site or all stories of like how people decide to go to grad school is the same since fields are different. But for the MFA program, I feel like you, it's almost like a, 
I mean, for me, I took like a gap, like a five, six year gap before going to back to, to school to this MFA program. And uh, you just know, you know, like it's kind of like getting married, you know, whenever you're dragging your feet and you just really need to just, you know, take the plunge and just do it. Um, especially if this thing, you know, writing your passion for writing is just always it never goes away. And uh, definitely if anybody's listening and they're, you know, feeling the, the that type of burn to to write, whether it's poetry, nonfiction, whatever, anything in the arts, really, because the MFA is performative as well as, uh, you know, uh, as for, for writing. Uh, and I wish USF had more overlap with um, the MFA program, which is mostly, it's just writing. And I wish there were more like performative uh, stuff. There are very uh, few, yeah. if any, um, MFAs in poetry that encourage or train you for performance. Mm -hmm. That's my biggest criticism of the MFA that I went to. Well, it's the second biggest criticism. I went to San Francisco State's um, MFA, which is a huge MFA program. There are all, there's, it's combined with an MA. So there's 200 some students who are in your program. Um, maybe more now. I was in the 90s. So uh, what was odd to me was first that almost every poet that was being taught uh, or, or teaching was all about language poetry, which is very text-based um, and not written to entice kind of like uh, so much interaction with, with audience. Um, it's more philosophical um, in a lot of ways. And, and so I was trying to fit into that as an MFA uh, and it didn't work for me <laughs> because my own mom couldn't understand my poetry. And I felt, oh no, if, if my mom, who I love dearly, who supported me in everything, can't understand what I'm writing about, something's wrong with what I'm doing. And then, you know, I was getting published, but it was in, you know, super experimental stuff. Um, Kevin Killian, Dodie Bellamy, people who were part of the local experimental art scene in the 90s i was part of that scene um rodrigo toscano a lot of a lot of folks um uh, the berrigan kids all all those folks were part of our scene and i just kind of pulled myself away from it after a while i was like this is not my scene um my scene is more popular narrative oriented work um and luckily there was a poetry scene in san francisco like mm -hmm. you know what i mean there are a lot of cities that have no readings. Um, yeah. uh, but this one had a ton. And in that moment, there were a bunch. But I realized that I was more in the, I want to tell stories. Um, I want immediate reaction. I don't want to wait for someone to read my book to feel their uh, reaction. So I pushed harder for um, performative uh, types of writing. So I started going to the open mics. And um, I started going to the Poetry Slam and um really got you know uh attracted to um community uh at a, at a at a different level right um it i mean i had fun in the experimental poetry scene um the conversation was often uh a, a little heady at times um but essentially the they were all the same, more or less. The experimental scene may have been less diverse as the spoken word scene and smaller. The spoken word scene had 600 people in the audience. The experimental um, had 20 or 30 or 40. So I was like, wow, there's 600 people here for this show. Um, 
And, you know, I loved the ability to invite folks who are from different parts of my own kind of social scene who could enjoy the spoken word scene versus inviting people to experimental poetry scenes. They get bored really fast. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not, I'm a very social person. So I want whatever I'm doing to attract people to have fun. Yeah. Right. And and I was feeling that wasn't always happening. It happened a few times. There were a couple really cool poets who were able to use language poetry and kind of critique it and and be very satirical about it and make people laugh. And that was fun, but that was very rare. Um mm-hmm. and so then I started, you know, looking at who were the other poets, older poets in the scene who I could um emulate or work with and then I started uh, you know, looking at Jenny Lim. Um, Jenny Lim was teaching at uh, the new school when it used to be open um, on Valencia. And she was very performative. She would sing in her poems. They were very political. They were, um, uh, you know, rejecting imperialism. Um, and she was very jazz oriented. And I loved that. And I was like, okay, now I'm starting to feel where my voice should fit. And so then it, it became more about uh, musicality and and narrative and political resistance and um celebration of culture so those are kind of like um the the containers that i was finding my voice fitting in and my community right that's where Mm -hmm. that's what my community was responding to those types of um those those that style uh and i was and i was um happy to begin touring uh that way you know um my performance poetry moved me all over the nation. I started getting invited to perform at different festivals and different universities. And then, you know, I got on deaf poetry and that opened up a gigantic um, community of not just um, poets, but regions of, of poetry. So I did a whole Florida tour, I remember. And I found myself in Georgia one night and, um, I did the poem Brown Dreams Mm -hmm. and Brown Dreams is a poem that was responding to immigrants who would serve in the Iraq war um, after 9-11 and Mm -hmm. who were given posthumous citizenship. So they would serve in the military, die, and then be given citizenship. Um, But the citizenship and all of the death benefits of any other soldier who was a citizen, um, they didn't receive those. So their families didn't get health insurance, didn't get um, their life insurance, they didn't get any support from the military. Essentially, the family members of a dead immigrant soldier get a flag and the, and the dead soldier's citizenship papers. They get to be buried in the United States. That's what you get. Um, and it was horrible. And so I exposed this and said, this is a very um, manipulation of, of, of immigrants and uh, one of the audience members had just come back from Afghanistan and he was a medic and he got really offended by the poem. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, when we are uh, out there in the battlefield, um, you all, we all bleed red. It doesn't matter what race we are. And I'm saying, dude, I'm not criticizing that. I'm talking about a policy called posthumous citizenship mm-hmm. where immigrant soldiers are treated differently. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And he's like, yeah, but you're criticizing saying the military is racist. I go, no, I'm not. Actually, the military practices um, affirmative action, Mm -hmm. right? Better than universities do. Um, 
and so he hadn't really heard the poem. He just heard me say brown dreams and focus on a Latino soldier who in the end is, is not given justice. So he thought I was saying the military is racist. I mean, I could have had that conversation, but I was trying to let people know what was happening with immigrant soldiers. That's what I was doing. I was trying to make people aware of a policy that we should change, you know, um, and he got offended by it. And, and there I was, you know, with, I was by myself in Savannah, Georgia, um, totally getting ripped on by this, this veteran. And I said, wow, this is what poetry can do if I perform it out loud. So this is the risk I take, you know, by being a public performer instead of, you know, receiving negative feedback through a letter or an email, mm -hmm. I have to face it. And it made me a lot stronger. I'll be honest with you. Um, it made my writing stronger, but it also made um, uh, my ability to relate to people who aren't like me better, mm -hmm. right? Because not everybody's going to agree with me, right? So I had students walk out of my class at Iowa State when I said I support open borders. You know, I was like, I, I don't believe we should have borders. They should be closed down, that they should be um, ice and there should be open borders between the United States, Canada and Mexico. And two kids got up and walked out of my class and complained about it. Right to their to their dean. Instead of maybe just raising their hand and like, can we have a conversation about this? Yeah, they yeah. were they were infuriated, and they left. And I got you know a call from the people who brought me out. I was like, you know, Paul, this is what happened in the fallout of your visit. And I said, I'm sorry, you know, um, I understand, you know, but but the the book that I wrote along the border lies is actually criticizing borders and um, the divisions that it makes between people. So. Um, I think it's pretty clear what the, what the book is, is saying around, uh, forcing us, uh, to choose allegiances that are, um, fabricated such as a border. A border wasn't there until the United States decided to create a nation state and it literally, the border literally crossed people's lives and forced them to choose one or the other. And if they didn't choose the right, they were either booted out or put in prison. So it's, it's a violent process, uh, and I don't believe in it. And that's essentially what I wanted to say in the book uh, in a lot of ways at a superstructure level. So you guys already knew that, right? Otherwise you wouldn't have invited me and they were like, huh? <laughs> we didn't think about that. We just wanted you to do poems about Latinos. So, well, you should do a little bit better research about who I am and what I believe in, you know, take some time to research. But you know, a lot of folks, they will get a name from somebody. Oh, we want a Latino poet. Who should we invite? And Google. Yeah, like the tokenism sort of. Who shows up first? That's who I'll contact. Yeah. Uh, so thankfully, there's far more Latino spoken words and poets now than there were mm -hmm. when I was touring, you know, back in 03, 04, 05, and in the first, you know, beginning of the 2010s. I t tour much more theater now. Yeah. Yeah. And I love uh, uh, just all of that. I don't know how to, there's so many parts that I wanted mm. to. Yeah, I'm just kind of absorbing all of that. Um, yeah, I I think that poetry, and especially, um, yeah, dealing with uh, people who, I've had this happen in like workshops, not like in public, um, but where somebody's reaction to your poem, I would far rather have a poem, something that I've written or said, you know, to strike a nerve where we have our feelings sort of at, you know, you know, where there's a challenge to sort of find a, a sort of way to, to feel like um, we need to 
to, I guess, we, we definitely disagree about something, um, but I would rather poetry or any type of art do that than just people yawning and being indifferent to it or saying really vague compliments, you know, just sitting through and just uh, letting time pass and not uh, really think about what what they're doing, you know, why, you know, why am I reacting this way to this poem? And whenever it brings up those emotions, that's, you know, that's a success. That's a really successful poem to, to bring, even if it is something that is negative, you know, it's still bringing that, it still exists and we need to have those encounters with our, our work and not just have like stuffy classrooms, you know, where we're teaching the same, you know, uh, canon old dead white poets, you know, <laughs> that I was taught mostly in undergrad. Um, and yeah, and to actually use current political, you know, topics that affect all of us. Uh, you just heard uh, a song called Que Viva Revolucion uh, by Los uh, Moquichetes, and I'm probably butchering, butchering the pronunciation, um, but that song was uh, recommended to me by uh, Paul Flores, uh, who knows uh, that group uh, who are based in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, the, the singer is Hoser, who is also a very well-known um, poetry slam champion he's been part of denver's poetry slam team and have won the national championships several times so he's uh he's very well known in denver and in the uh, poetry slam community so he's now singing for this group and i thought that the beat was really cool and and you know abajo con donald trump you know i, I like i like just like songs that are catchy that have political messages yeah yeah <laughs> Um, and the video, I'm going to post the video because it's a really cool, like, um, montage of, like, a reenactment of the 1969 uh, walkouts from a high school, I think, West West High in Denver, Colorado. Um, and, yeah, just showing images from, from that and showing, like, the side-by-side of what they're doing now in this music video. It's really, really craftily done and really fun. Um so yeah, I'll post that. Uh, and I'm really into the party while you while you rebel thing. I'm really mm-hmm. into it. I feel like revolution should be fun and attractive as much as as it is, you know, intellectually disciplined and organized. I don't feel like we can um, forget to love and celebrate while we're fighting for justice. Yeah, I love that. I have been. Uh, reading june jordan a whole bunch and in this past like six to eight months and she said something and especially whenever i was like on an empathy binge and i was just so drained and wasn't really fun anymore (laughs) and i could feel myself like wearing people out in conversations because they're always socio-political in sort of critical ways and not take a breather like we're fighting for these things because we want to enjoy life and Mm -hmm. enjoy Mm -hmm. spending time together um And she had this really great quote um, where she was quoting somebody else where she said, um, if it's not a revolution I can dance to, it's not my kind of revolution. (laughs) And I love that. I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I'm a a happy person, mostly. Um, I, I definitely dedicate myself to the fight for justice for all folks. Um. And there are times when it's tough. There certainly are. 
when you see your associates and friends and colleagues being treated unjustly, when you see folks being hurt, um, that's hard to deal with. And, you know, so you, you don't feel like parting in that moment, but to keep people motivated, um, we need to uplift our spirits and, you know, the best ways to do that are, you know, coming together, are sending out positive vibes through music and poems and plays and paintings and murals and in great dancing. And, you know, those are all wonderful releases of the tension that this fight brings. Yeah. So I, I appreciate when folks move that way, too. Mm hmm. I have to keep reminding myself that, like, okay, it's okay to smile. It's okay to look up, like, a cat video or something just to <laughs> just to get a pick-me-up, you know. Uh, whenever people are suffering, uh, they don't want you to suffer. You know, you don't always have to, to feel like uh, just because problems aren't getting fixed as quickly as I would like them to, there's still good that is happening that exists, and that's, you know, that's why you why you work for progress is because you have hope that um, these, uh, you know, forces of, of good are, are alive and thriving. We just need to get more people uh, to believe the same and to, to get on board with the same uh, causes. And you started a group called uh, Los Delicados. Los Delicados. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There, I tried to look them up and I didn't really find, I found like another band, but they seem <laughs> kind of esoteric. And that, in an interview, you kind of said, we were kind of underground, we were kind of, you know, like young, doing our thing, uh, mm -hmm. uh, going out and, uh, you know, doing our own sort of poetry, what we wanted to do with poetry since um, the MFA program, you didn't have as much... I mean, I don't want to like uh, criticize the po the MFA program that you went to, but you felt like you needed to create your own sort of. Yeah, uh, the MFA program I went to was quite frustrating. Um, in my first couple of years, uh, I had very bad experiences in the workshop from some students and from some instructors who were just really discouraging. Um, and I believe I received a C in one of my classes from uh, a, a teacher who told me she doubted I could write a sentence. Um, and so, you know, there were other people that told us, don't write in Spanish. This is an English MFA. Um, and when you looked around the room, there were three Latinos in the whole 200 uh, student program and those three of us got together to start Los Delicados um, because we wanted to um, speak in our own language, we wanted to perform, um, we wanted to uh, show our joy of poetry and our influences um, outside the MFA program. So you can actually find those delicados. You won't probably find any videos of us that much because we started in 96 and then um, I think we stopped performing around 2003, 2004. We didn't break up. We just uh, quit pursuing those gigs. We had other things that we were doing. Um, but you can look us up on uh, iTunes. Um, we're, on, we're on iTunes. Our CD that came out from Kalaka Press in 2000 um, is on iTunes. So you can see what we did. And uh, we were combining theater, music, and uh, poetry. 
Uh, so we usually always performed with a drummer or a full band. Um, and we, we had full musical plays that weren't really like traditional in any sense of the form, you know, like it was a 90 minute <laughs> performance and 45 minutes of it was just straight performance poetry. And we tried to find a narrative in there we didn't have a director. We just doing whatever <laughs> we wanted to do. And we had a couple of really cool, um, crowd participation poems that were really kind of used to, to motivate Latino folks to be proud of who they were and where they came from. One of those poems was called Presente, um, where when somebody dies and you want to call them back into uh, the room or you want to call them their spirit, you say, you say their name and Presente, right? So um, this happened at all Chicano rallies and you know, you might say Che Guevara, presente, right? Like, you know, that's who that's who we're being motivated right now. So we took that form and added a couple poetic lines about that person. And so we would say, like, you know, um, like if we had a poem for Dolores Huerta, I don't remember how it exactly went. It was like uh, uh, something suffering in the fields, uh, something, something. I forgot exactly what it was, but. Um, we would do a, a poem, a short po two blind poem about her, say her name and do presente. Right. And then we would add the drums and it was really cool. Um, we did that for mostly like for people who had died. And so whenever there was a rally or whenever there was a meeting or a festival, we would always open up. They would always ask us to go perform. Uh, so we had a little fame within the California Latino scene. Then we went out and toured, all over uh, New York and Texas um, and some Midwest spots. And we were in Chicago a lot. Um, so we were around, we were around and it was a lot of fun. Uh, we were very rebellious and drunk most of the time. <laughs> uh, and that's the truth. Uh, As you are in your twenties, yeah. mid twenties. Yeah, yeah, we were, I was, <laughs> I was 23. It was, you know, um, I, th I think right around, I had my first kid at 32 that I stopped working with Los Delicados because I had to be responsible. Yeah. Do an exchange <laughs> of priorities. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the poems, if you want to check out the CD, it's called word descarga. It really kind of, um, tracks the beginning of the gentrification, uh, because we were, we're all from the mission. We all lived in the mission. Uh, right on 23rd and Bryant. So we were, you know, writing about what was happening from 1996 to 99, um, where a lot of our friends were being evicted, where um, the dot-com uh, movement or change had just started. And we started seeing how vulnerable our community could be to money from the outside. But we were also experiencing cultural conflicts because at that moment, there were still very few white people moving into the mission very few tech folks from Silicon Valley. And now it's a whole different, you know, ball game down there. But this was the beginning of, of artist lofts being uh, set aside for artists who were graphic designers and web designers that was said it was an art. And so we were like, these are artist lofts, but we don't know any of those artists. And they're here in our neighborhood who are the artists that were living. They were, they were all web designers. And it was weird that that was now changed, that was being changed. The, it literally one, one uh, loft development um, came after destroying and a mural by a local Latino muralist, Chuy Campusano, 
was one of the major signs that things were changing in our neighborhood when a developer took down a three-story mural to put up a loft. Um, we were like, wow, the concept of what art is has become totally commercialized inside of our neighborhood. And we were resisting that with our poems. That was what, what Delicados did. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's heartbreaking. I, since I got here, um, I had really no uh, frame of reference because whenever I moved here, I had only, I just moved here, just coming into San Francisco with all of my preconceptions of what San Francisco is. And the longer I've stayed here, the more, you know, locals especially have told me how much, yeah, over the past two decades or so, um, things have really shifted, especially, well, in terms of homelessness. It's more like the 80s, late 80s, where Reagan had a huge uh, hand uh, playing and uh, taking away like a lot of like uh, mental health services and stuff like that. But that's kind of a side, a side tangent. Yeah, um, but I definitely think homelessness is at a, a huge crisis right now. There was always homeless, um, not at the level we're seeing right now. Uh, so, mm-hmm. and that that homelessness, what the last one of the last stats I read was that of the 10,000 homeless in San Francisco, like. 70% of them are actually former um, residents. Natives, yeah. So, so they are not transients. They're people yeah. from here who lost their spots. And that is a direct relationship to the difficulty of holding down, you know, affordable housing mm-hmm. or finding affordable housing in this city. Uh, you know, and then if you go across the bay, you'll go to Oakland and you'll see that a lot of folks living there, those homeless, were former residents of San Francisco also. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, the the evolution of gentrification continues um, and, you know, the responses to it um, come at different waves and with different momentum. You know, for instance, we were fighting the Ellis Act evictions back in the 90s a lot, right? And how do you, that was one way of evicting people very quickly was like my sister's moving in get out Mm -hmm. and then people would be like oh it's legal you can evict me but no one would check up on the fact whether the sister ever really moved in and so then people started learning okay we can hold these folks accountable yeah we got to take them to court it's going to take a while to prove in fact that the ellis eviction was wrong you know and so now there's there's um some um, leverage that tenants have based on the the protesting that we did, mm-hmm. right? And and different legislation that has been moved across the city council. Um, it takes time, you know. Uh, it's much easier to kick somebody out than fight an eviction. Um, and nowadays, folks are learning how to organize to stop that, right? But what's happened is how do we replace? the um, affordable housing that has been lost to Airbnb mm-hmm. or that has been lost to condoing, right? All those those types of, of places, we don't have them anymore. And there's a bunch of new people in the city now, a ton. There's, you know, I, I think since, what was it, since 2000, the population increased by 40 or 50,000 people. And we just don't have the housing stock for that, nor the infrastructure. And so now we have Uber and Lyft, which brings in 30 to 40,000 new cars a day. You can't move around downtown anymore. You can't, you can't, if you drive, it's like you're stuck down there. Um, So it's, it's a different city. It's a different city. Now there's that gigantic Salesforce. And now we're a tech city. We are no longer a arts city. We're a tech innovation 
and not a you know um not a city for uh experimentation what you know what i mean innovation now means tech um when when i first came to the city people were um were very public in their expression so you know and i'm not talking just about street festivals i'm talking about um there was a street life that's not about homelessness it, it was a public life. People were doing things in the street. There were, um, you know, people selling things on the street. There used to be bookstores, p- booksellers on the streets. There would be performances and protests happening all the time. There was a lot of interaction. That has been totally removed. And look at Valencia Street now. Valencia Street looks like um, Melrose in 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 Hollywood and L.A. The, the you know it's all about you know keeping a certain facade look up expensive looking mm-hmm. but valencia used to be uh, one of the spots you got your revolutionary information from that's where um you would see performances you had the macondo uh cafe there that was specifically dedicated to you know where people met about revolution and um it's it's interesting the the erasure that's happened based on what how the economy has changed due to tech and influence um the lack of middle ground anymore either you're rich or you're poor in the city has changed our cultural kind of creation and our interactions with people um you know people will gravitate towards their class and and often towards their own kind of um, interests. So if you're spending most of your time coding, that's who's going to be in your social network. You're not going to go hang out with the, with the street poet. You're not going to go hang out with the actor. You're not going to go hang out with the mural artist. You're going to hang out with other coders. Mm-hmm. Now there's a ton of coders. You can see them. They're, they ride the Google bus. They don't interact with with the other folks. They live a separate life. Um, and that's horrible. I think it's, I think it's bad. It, it's bad for our city because you could come here and be a freak, a weirdo, and you were accepted. Now you don't have to be accepted. You can just be ignored yeah. because these people who are now uh, living in the mission and they're young folks, they're not interested in, in humanities, in culture, in, um, in, in public interaction and discourse. You know, they, they want to communicate online. They want to, they want to, they want you to look at stuff on the screen. And that's not the culture of the mission specifically. We've always been a very public community where we do things on the street, where people talk to each other, where you know your neighbor. That lamentably is gone. Um, and I work at, I work um, on 24th Street at an organization called Acción Latina. I produce this thing called Paseo Artístico, which is essentially a art stroll for the Latino community on 24th Street. 10 or 12 uh, venues produce free arts activities uh, every other Saturday, every other month on the second Saturday. And so it could be like poetry, it could be like art classes, drawing classes, pop-up muraling, um, live uh, concerts, exhibits. You know, we, we do that for our community to remind folks that this is, an, this is a cultural district. It isn't a bedroom um, community for people that work at Google. Right. Mm-hmm. We have to remind them. So we have to like do free arts activities to, to let people know that, you know, this isn't just where the Google bus passes. 
You know, this is where we have grown up listening to Carlos Santana, where we have um, established uh, comparsas for Carnaval for 35 years, where lowriders um, first started going through here. We have to remind people of the culture that San Francisco is instead of the money that you can make. Because I didn't come here for money. I came here to, to, to have a community of, of artists, which wasn't in Southern California. You could not um, experiment or experience a large, vibrant cultural scene in San Diego because it was a very conservative town. There was no um, systemic, uh, there was no public investment in art. Um, here, you could at least uh, find um, opportunities to sustain your work through getting money um, through foundations and, and the San Francisco Arts Commission is a great, one of the best um, public arts uh, structures in the nation. I and mean, we actually have an equity-based model to distribute public funds to um, non-dominant uh, or alternative or um, I don't like saying minority uh, marginalized communities between uh, LGBTQ, uh, Latino, Asian, um, Black. There's there's an actual fund that the city pays for millions of dollars to give to those folks to make art. That doesn't happen in most cities. Mm -hmm. um, so the values that created something like a, a, a cultural equity fund and the sanctuary city those are at those are those are those are vulnerable to last further generations where, where we are right now we can't just let the memory of those um accomplishments go away so um i continue to produce uh, art in 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 San Francisco for that exact reason to remind people why this is such a beautiful city. Yeah, thank you so much. That context too is just illuminating for me because I've been volunteering with the Coalition on Homelessness and trying to learn more about um, why the divide is the way it is with you know these tech workers and to. It, it really is so frustrating and so ominous to see basically a third world country and then this other, you know, walking over, you know, people who are on the streets and just ignore it, you know, just completely indifferent to feeling like they have any sort of direct relationship, um, even if they're not the, the people who are the billionaires who are sucking away, you know. Uh, equally distributed, uh, you know, funding. That's more of a federal funding that we don't have um, better safety nets in place for this socioeconomic crisis. Uh, but I mean, just people's empathy, people's compassion to know the origins of uh, San Francisco and the culture and the people who've been here far longer than they have and to respect uh, that this is a place that people live and have had their, you know, uh, raised families and uh, started careers and started communities. And it's really, really eerie to see, uh, to see, especially in the financial district, um, to see, uh, and in most pockets of, of San Francisco, to just see this huge, stark chasm between, you know, and I don't want to say us and them because I really do want to see, you know, like the opportunity to bridge, um, you know, the tech side of people uh, with, you know, the more arts uh, side of people. Uh, 
and um, and especially for homeless folks, um, I think uh, there needs to be some type of solidarity. I think between any any two different demographics, I think there's some type of semblance of solidarity that can be met between the housed and the homeless. I feel like even if you do have a lot of the same or similar uh, identity, you know, identity uh, sorts of things. If you're housed versus homeless, I think that there's such a huge disconnect, and I'm trying to work on uh, what what to what to do about that to to create more dialogue, to create more um, to hop on uh, board with people who are doing really great work. Because um, I mean, it really is just the housing market is ridiculous, and there's just people can't keep their head over water. Um, and native San Franciscans. Like you're saying, like or or people who've lived here for a long time, most of their lives, uh, they are getting evicted. They can't afford the rising prices. They can't compete with, um, you know, workers who are moving in here. It's basically a Manhattan in San Francisco. I know, uh, right? For nine hundred thousand people. Yeah, <laughs> and there's something like how many billionaires? Like I think there's seventy billionaires that live in San Francisco. And it just, hey, what are they doing? Uh, <laughs> Why can't they yeah. help us out? <laughs> I mean, I, I do, I do, I do think like you know, someone like a Benioff is is mm-hmm. possibly in a position to to change some of the the dynamics around uh, housing, and you know, he had that whole um, quest to hold Airbnb accountable and. But he also said, which is rightly, that it's runaway capitalism right now. There is no um, accountability for the tech companies who are basically doing whatever they want um, and have been invited to do whatever they want. And get tax breaks. and Yeah, but also they've been invited um, to, to do things, you know, essentially they're the tech barons in our community are kind of running San Francisco in a very um, uh, backroom way. You know, uh, the, the amount of money they represent is so um, much that it's difficult to ignore what they want. You know, if you're asking Mark Zuckerberg to come advise the congressional panel or even Obama, uh, that should give you, give it away right there. The power that someone like a a Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or any of these guys Mm -hmm. have, and they're always guys. Um, and they're always a white guy. Um, (laughs) and you know, I'm not saying that, that we aren't all invested in, Apple, yeah, in in Spotify or Facebook, and that oh, it's bad. What we need is equity. Mm-hmm. We need people to start thinking about um, you have too much. How do you distribute with equity? How how do we avoid suffering when you are winning so much? Um, and how do we hold them accountable for that? So how do you like actually tax them at the right level? How do you um, rec- make certain requirements based on their profit margins? How do we measure the impact of new um, tech companies moving into um, San Francisco and what it does to our, you know, uh, 
environment. Uh, these things weren't done. They weren't done. They just kind of came. And yes, oh, your Twitter's coming? Great. Bring them all in. Nobody thought that 10,000 new Twitter employees was going to change the housing market. It totally did. It totally changed. And then the housing changed the way we relate to each other, which then created a, a, a large homeless problem, which if you're homeless, you're trying to get rid of suffering. So you're you're vulnerable to everything, so you're also kind of trying to dull that. And several folks have developed problems in the process of being homeless that now we don't have the resources to to um, support. It's weird. We're talking about art, but in San Francisco, you know, the way art usually gets made is in community with people. And so you're often talking about the intersection of social problems and art. Art is not mm -hmm. supposed to solve the social problem, but art should inspire you to want to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, and I think there's there's some groups, uh, like especially like Street Sheets, I really love. They had like a poetry edition. Uh, and I'm trying to do more with like podcasting with, uh, with people who've either currently or formerly experienced uh, homelessness and just getting their stories out there and to make visible not just like the problems that they have, but also like their humanity. Like what, you know, what do they, what music do they like? What do they like to, to, to do and sort of celebrate their lives and not just, uh, you know, having us versus them, any type of agenda of like using somebody as a prop to like get sort of uh, different uh, socio-political policy changes in the city, but um, just to show community. There's a there's a um an, an, a writer in the mission. Her name is Adriana Camarena, and she um, got a grant uh, through the Creative Work Fund to work with El Tecolote, which is a bilingual paper um, in the mission, where her every one of her articles is basically an interview with a homeless person, cool. and the 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 theme is called unsettled, right? And it's just like, you know, how are homeless people in the mission? What's their story? How are they living? How do they get here? What do they want? And so, like, it's what I'm saying is like there are there are currently there yeah. there are ways in which artists can 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 do this um you know where where you're you if you have the desire you know and and you have um she has a platform because el tecolote actually publishes the stories that she writes um about these homeless folks um but it's called unsettled and you can you can read it online at el tecolote um and el, el tecolote means the owl in spanish uh and it's a, a local paper out of, uh, but it's one of the oldest local papers in San Francisco, like fifty years old. Um, but I, I know Adriana, and she she lives in a co-op housing uh, on um, Folsom Street. So she lives with a bunch of other artists, and they all like put their money together and 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 got support from I forgot which tenant program, uh, but they were able to buy the building from the owner. So there's like six units, which. Um, you know, they'll be able to rent for really cheap or, or have for like 99 years, uh, because they got like the housing trust to invest in it. Nice. So they have a lot of strategies around, um, how to organize for housing rights, but also, you know, how to, how to develop empathy for the homeless, as well as how to raise awareness about what they're going through mm -hmm. and art and art can be that. And, um, just giving people ideas, you know, not to feel helpless when you see some of these issues on the street. Mm -hmm. I definitely, I 
I definitely will check her out in her uh, her series, Unsettled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll post that too uh, onto the archived episode so people can 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 see that and and enjoy uh, her work um, and be inspired on you know certain projects that you might have. You know, a seed has been planted probably at some point of like trying to do something that's an outreach uh, to. Uh, uh, you know, the homeless population or any other population who's uh, uh, marginalized uh, and being an advocate, whether you identify with marginalized uh, identities or not, um, it takes all of us to, to really join together and uh, and share each other's stories and uh, and share your own story, too. This is kind of a selfish question, maybe, but I think other people would probably like uh, to to hear your thoughts. Uh, with everything that you do, um, professional uh, stuff, artistic, creative stuff, political, and um, you know your personal life, how do you find balance? How do you uh, stay afloat? How do you stay motivated? And uh, you know, or what what helps you stay focused and grateful? Well, that's a lot of questions. That is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the balance question is is difficult per, for any working artist to address because um, being a, being an artist in the city is very difficult uh, in relationship to living off your art and being able to afford uh, to live here. So the the balance of trying to meet rent and expenses and still be creative is difficult. So, you know, one way I, I, I balance that is by teaching, right? So, you know, it's important for me to be able to create a successful artist to me is an artist that's working. Um, if you're not working either on your art or, you know, having your stuff published and produced, it, it's hard to feel successful. So, you know, a, a working artist to me is a successful artist. So I'm constantly trying to work. And if I'm not getting enough, a lot of work, then I balance it with teaching because it keeps me connected to the art. It te- keeps me connected to the young folks who have, who have um, thirsty minds, right? So luckily I just got offered um, a chance to teach theater at San Francisco State. Uh, so I'm going to be teaching this fall. I'll be teaching acting at, at San Francisco State. I'm excited about that because I graduated from there. Yeah. So that was a big deal. And I also got offered uh, the opportunity to teach two creative writing classes um, at Solano and Vacaville State Prison, where I'll be working with the Prison, Prison Arts Project, in, in addition to the two theater classes I teach at USF. So, you know, um, I'm in a holding pattern right now for taking the play we have day on tour we begin our tour in, in december so for basically this whole semester i'm going to be teaching um and you know listening and meeting new new students um between between the prisons and san francisco state so i'm excited about that um my children ground me i think that ultimately um i have a a, a duty to be a father i have three children two of whom live in san francisco one lives in denver Um, so I've got to hold that down. I have to be present for their needs. Um, uh, I'm a single father, although, you know, they split time with their mom and me. Uh, so, you know, being a dad, actually, I I don't recommend every artist be a parent, but if it happens to you, you will see the type of response to deadlines you have. Um, and so, you know, 
being being a parent forces you to use your time really wisely. Um, and yeah, you end up scheduling a ton of stuff, but you realize I've got to have time to be a dad. So whatever other time I have is divided between work um, and very a little bit of, of pleasure. You know, I don't get a ton of, of rest. <laughs> I work a lot, um, but it's also kind of like what I like doing the the grounding that my that my ch- children offer me and giving me a purpose uh, um and i also ground and uh, balance myself by um looking for ways to stay creative even if i'm not making a piece at the moment um and all through that i have i also have people who care about me who mentor me who offer me um advice who remind me you know to to work on balance i have spiritual guides I have uh, have a life coach. I have um, I put a lot of people in on, in my corner to help me, you know. Um, so I don't fall off the rails with too much stuff going on. Yeah. So I, I have learned to gather uh, a team of trusted people. That's amazing. Yeah, I think. Yeah, definitely uh, going against that the misconception that artists are like reclusive, like hermits, they have to be quarantined in an attic somewhere in the woods uh, to produce really great work. Um, But I mean, I mean, all of that, like people that you care about, that you love, and new people that you meet, like are the inspiration for a lot of work. Absolutely. uh, And yeah, and you just need to have a support system because you and nobody is self-made, you know. There's uh, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of people I'm grateful for that I could not, you know, do a lot of. Th- I couldn't have this radio show without, you know, a support system, without a friend that I made, uh, who's my supervisor, Miranda. Uh, shout out to Miranda. If she's Yay, Miranda! Out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Are there? Mm, thank any, you. Are there any um, like? Uh, uh, ways people can get involved um, with uh, anything. Uh, I can post links to. Um, yeah, like, like if if people are. I mean, I'm a very. I'm a mission. I'm a mission district person. That's where I started creating my community and my art. So you will find me always on 24th Street. Um, if you are inclined to get involved in the community, and I'm speaking specifically to the mission district community. Um, you can you can come to Acción Latina which is a, um, uh, a, a, like a, a local media organization advocacy group for the Mission District. Uh, we have a, a building um, right on uh, Alabama and 24th Street next to El Farolito Taqueria, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. Um, and you can catch me there, you know, in the afternoons. Uh, I'm there. If you want to volunteer, get involved in the in the different um, cultural activities that we do. We also have a gallery. We run a gallery. There's a dope show up uh, right now, uh, a father-son um, show uh, about kind of like images of San Francisco that they painted. And um, you should check it out. You can just you can just go to uh, Acción Latina. Uh, .org and, and check out the stuff there. But if you want to like, get involved, there's plenty of opportunities to plug in. Right now, we're supporting census development and census awareness for the Mission District because the Mission is one of those communities between the Bayview and the Mission where the least amount of people respond to the census, which then you know puts in jeopardy really important resources to our community. So we're trying to build awareness around the census 2020 for our community and the Mission. 
so we're doing that through arts activities. Um, we had this event on August 10th called uh, Cuenta Conmigo, Count Me In Census 2020, where we're doing a bunch of different art activities to raise awareness for the census on August 10th from 12 to 8 p.m. If you want to volunteer for that, come uh, see us at Acción Latina. Or, you know, um, you can also go to my website, uh, paulsflores.art, and you can check out what I'm doing there and send me an email through the website, paulsflores.art. Um, otherwise, you know, come, I'm on campus Mondays and Wednesdays, uh, usually up on Lone Mountain. That's where my, my classes are, um, because I, I teach in performing arts and social justice. But anytime you see me, um, my, my classroom's always open if you want to just sit in for a moment, including you, Darcy, if you want to just come yeah. check out a class, participate. We do workshop actively in the class. So you might walk right into an assignment. Um, where you have to talk and meet and act and write with people you don't know. Mm -hmm. So know that, know that you might have to rap. Uh, you might have to dance a little. And uh, that's part of hip hop theater is using your whole body. Just make him shut up.